0: Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and I'm very pleased to bring on our next guest. This is Dr. Melissa Katie, and Dr. Katie has a uh, a story you may have heard in the past. She is an anesthesiologist by training, fellowship trained in pain, and uh, has basically had a transformation in her practice style uh, that came over time. And I would love to have Dr. Katie talk to about her challengers her transition her background so that you can hear her own story as it occurred in the great state of texas dr katie thank you for joining us today on stray shot health talk
1: well thank you dr kevin for having me on i appreciate it um you are correct i have a very similar but very um i, know, I would say opposing uh, situation now versus what i was trained in so just to give you a, a little background I went to osteopathic medical school, and um, actually, before even going to medical school, I wasn't one of those people that just thought I was going to be a physician from you know five years old or something like that. I think I've always been inquisitive. I've always been very um, self-reflective. On just because I was an athlete, I tended to pay attention to how people moved and how they function and always was kind of looking at people in a way that trying to understand why they move a certain way. And so I just wanted to learn more. And I think it was just kind of a natural progression of things that I went to college at the University of Texas at Austin, of course, and was a Longhorn. And I actually worked for a few years in the medical field, working in some offices. So I didn't go straight into medical school out of college, which is not typical. So I went to the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth. Finally, after deciding to go to medical school, I actually thought about massage therapy school, another body mechanic kind of thing, uh, hands-on, that seemed interesting. But I got into medical school, actually was accepted to the University of Texas at Houston, which is an MD or allopathic school, and also the TCOM school for DOs. And I opted to go to the DO school over the MD school, mainly because of the additional tool of diagnosing and treating with your hands just seemed like an extra skill that would be good to have. So you know, I, I went into this whole idea of just wanting to learn more and know more, in which a lot of people get caught in the trap that they think, once they go into medical school, that you suddenly know everything. And that's so far from the truth. It's just the foundation of beginning Your medical understanding of things. And I went and did a, ironically, I was liking so many things because I liked learning, which is one of those lessons in life, is that I just have this deep desire to learn a lot of things and not really deep in one thing, but a lot of different things and different perspectives, which will be important when we talk about that in a little bit. But I did a year of general surgery uh, because I. Couldn't get into either radiology or physiatry or what's called physical medicine and rehabilitation, and actually contemplated even orthopedic surgery. I, I really couldn't make up my mind, so I did a year general surgery to let the time go by because you couldn't take a year off or you'd have to pay back all of your medical school loans, which you can't afford working a regular job. So I did a year general surgery. Um, then I. Ironically thought I was going to get into interventional or a radiology program and didn't want to move far at that time. It was for logistical reasons. Um, I limited myself with only a couple applications, which really limits your odds of getting into um, a training program. But I ended up having to do a year of um, internal medicine. And that was a year, actually, I needed to, to not work in a regular job. I actually had to go do this extra internship. So I'm one of those rare people that have done two internships. Um, So I did general surgery and then internal medicine, and then they had saved me a spot already for anesthesiology because I discovered it was pretty cool to, in my rotation, to work one-on-one with the patient uh, versus just writing orders to a nurse to tell them what to do. I wanted to be able to do those things. So I ended up doing that three years of anesthesia, and then I did one more year of a pain medicine fellowship. Mainly, I thought I would eventually do it, but I didn't want to go back to work in a regular job and not want to go back to training so i just went ahead and did the pain fellowship because i discovered how cool it would be to take away pain but more in it like an acute pain type setting so this is kind of a long drawn out story just because i've taken so many different paths and it has inevitably given me a perspective not as just as an internist um, or as a surgeon. And I did a little bit of surgery, actually, even as an intern, but it also gave me perspective being in the anesthesiology position. And then with all the pain fellowship work, this is where things really started taking a different turn, because I personally had dealt with pain, not only just as an athlete, but in medical school was struggling with persistent back pain. And I found ways of making it better, and with some assistance sometimes from other people, not understanding really why it had helped, or the whole situation had gotten better, but with all of that history and background, I ended up realizing that during my pain fellowship, things were being done in the private world that I was being exposed to. I realized that sometimes people were doing things based on reimbursement, and I always wanted to understand why. I want to understand why, why did that help, Or why can't we do something that's not as interventional and get people better? Because I knew that I had a lot of conviction that I had helped myself. And if I presented myself to the medical field, they would have been putting a lot of needles in me and maybe potentially offering me surgery. So I questioned and also believed that there were limitations in what I was being taught and that, and I didn't understand pain the way I'm understanding it now, but something intuitively within me said, this is, This doesn't make sense. And I didn't want to be part of what was going on in the private world. And to me, I just want to do what was right. And I wanted to expose people to the least amount of risk possible in order to help them get better. And more importantly, give them skills that they can pull out of their pockets, so to speak, to help themselves with and not be dependent on me. Because to me, it was a huge, huge burden to put on a practitioner to say, fix me. So that was at the end of my fellowship that all those feelings were building. And I realized, okay, I'll just go sub for somebody and see what it's like in one of these pain clinics in Austin. And I wrote over 50 scripts for opioids. There was no time or education given to anybody. I did two quick little joint injections cause it was kind of planned already. I didn't even really feel that comfortable because it just was, it was a very high, high volume, five different intermediate type of mid-level providers taking people in and and basically asking me to make the script for these patients. And it just seemed horrible approach to pain. And I just got very nauseated by the idea of trying to survive in an insurance model that would only pay me to do things to people and have to write ungodly number of scripts, then having to manage and monitor them and, and in a way that didn't, deal with the actual problem but just kept symptomatically you know helping them or so to speak helping them and they would have to repeatedly keep coming back to me um so i just from the get-go i never started my own practice because it didn't it didn't feel right and if i was to do my own my way i honestly didn't believe that i could survive um because i spent too much time talking to patients honestly so that's kind of what led me to um this world of not doing pain in the traditional sense but when people ask me why aren't you doing pain i actually am in a way so a couple of years later i decided to write a book called paindemic um we'll play on the word uh, pandemic but the pain epidemic not the opioid epidemic to me that's that's a downstream symptom of a of the real the root causes of how we're addressing pain opioids that's not what paindemic stands for and that's just one of many issues that are downstream effects of the pandemic. And I have to constantly remind people of that, um, because I keep fixating fixating on opioids as if the only way you treat pain is with a pill. Um, So I wrote the book. And at the last page of the book, I told people, if you want to share your story, go to pain out loud, which inevitably held me accountable to actually creating something online, um, which was very powerful and made me do it. So Now I have a Pain Out Loud community that I share pain challengers and pain professionals like you, Dr. Kevin, um, so that people have a better perspective on pain. And uh, so now I'm at a place where I'm evolving um, how I can really create a career in helping people. I think the hardest part is figuring out how you can sustainably live off of educating people that don't realize they need the education.
0: Yeah, that's uh definitely a lot of information there and definitely a huge <laughs> big challenge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could go on forever, but I figured I should stop. <laughs> uh, there's so much
0: wrapped in there, and it's like where because you know there's multiple places that that I think um, I mean we've obviously talked in in having a, a kind of shared background you were smarter than me because it took me much longer than uh than my my fellowship to figure out something was wrong i i was drinking the kool-aid and doing things and you know blamed everybody else around me for for people not getting well until i was on my own but uh you know it it's an interesting thing i I, want to go way back to the beginning though so because my suspicion is and and just let me know if i well actually you tell me and then i'll i'll tell you if my suspicion is correct but why did you actually go into medicine then
1: I think it's always a mixture, just like pain is. (laughs) I think my, well, I should give you a little example. I I am that kind of person that socially, I think I've always wanted to help people. And I think a lot of people do. Um, To give you an example of, it's in my blood in elementary school. I found out later, I mean, I don't remember too much of it, but the whole we are the world and you know, saving Africa and all these things. I literally raised like $500 in elementary school and I got another friend to help me. I raised money to give to, we are the world. I'm not even like out of elementary school. I get, I mean, I, I think it's just in me to, to just try to help people. And I think that's why, but I think the other side of the coin, Kevin is that I think I want it. Well, there, there's probably a third, um, but I would say that I wanted to know more and I wanted to understand things better. And um, that kind of went hand in hand with trying to help people. So I'm always like this eternal student. I think we, we all should be, but, um, and is there a part of me that if I'm being really honest and 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 with myself and maybe the world, is there a part of us that feels like people are going to, you know, this could be from childhood wanting to please and wanting to do good and make people proud and, and feel good about what you're doing with your life. And that there is some level of like, um, looking up to to physicians. I think there's, there's always that little part too, that, that plays into it. You know, I, most people want to be respected for what they're doing. And so from a selfish standpoint, maybe that was in my subconscious that I pursued that to make parents proud or make others proud um, but I think all, all three of those come to mind right off the top No, oh, and that was my suspicion because <laughs> yeah. that's, that's typical
0: I, you don't find a lot of healthcare providers um, and I think people have a hard time believing this at times is most people go into healthcare and, and most physicians that, that I've interacted with and certainly from, from my own viewpoint we go into it because we want to help people Right. That's that's what we do. Now the other part we also want to know. I do think that's important. We want to know more because we're interested in the science and in that knowledge. There's some important connotations to that knowledge that I think have been getting missed in our in our modern healthcare. But we want to help people. That's like the key of what we do. And um, so I just, just kind to pull that out because when I hear, you know, your your story, you echo over and over and over again that you're you wanted to help people that you wanted to empower people that you got nervous when you were what i call entrapping people to a therapy right it's not that hard to limp people along Mm -hmm. but to actually get them in a place where they are better for having known you and for what you've done with them um i just think that's really impressive and the fact that you that you recognized it so early uh Mm -hmm. that there was something wrong with the model is is definitely to to be commended so um I guess, you know, we, you kind of touched on a little bit, but could you? Was there ever, was there a moment in time when you're like, yeah, this does not seem to be going the way I think it is? Was it? What was it? When you were in that clinic that was set up, is a, um, I mean, truly honest, uh, the business way to do a pain clinic is you pump people through, you get mid levels to see them to do quick evaluations, you get them on the. You know, you write the you write the pill so that and then you say, well, we need to do injections in order to do give you these pills and kind of do that cycle. Was there was that was that the tipping point for you or was there something else that was earlier on or later that said, you know what, there's something a problem with the system that we have?
1: Well, I I mean, I fell into a trap of even like, you know, you'll find even a lot of manual therapies and other because of the osteopathic background. I was very comfortable. I, I, I will say that um, my osteopathic training, there are certain things I took with me and some that I felt like I questioned too. Um, but the, there are certain things I took from the um, osteopathic philosophy. And, and I think it's just a great philosophy in general is that the body's amazing. It's adaptable. It has ability to change. And, and so my trap was thinking that what I could do with my hands was the thing that was fixing people. Um, And I say all this because a lot of times there were patients in my pain fellowship training, in my pain fellowship, where people weren't able to help them with the injection or whatnot. And I even had general surgery, like directors of programs that actually sent people that were related to them to the clinic. And I would, I, I don't know if they're sent to me directly. I, I wouldn't want to say that, but I know that I ended up doing some general assessment instead of just saying, where's the pain generator, meaning, you know, where they feel the pain, what can we stick there to see if the pain will go away if we numb it up. I was always thinking what is causing that area to be angry or why is the pain there? What's the area nearby or what else is going on? Maybe a, a, a rib that was referring pain to the front because there are people that I was treating or assessing that had a million dollar workup literally because I knew people within the system. So they got every image known to man, even sometimes surgery, like literally couldn't find anything wrong. And I would just look at the big picture, step back, listen to their story, give them time, validate their experience, which I look back on it. Now I understand those are a lot of things I was doing for them. But I would put my hands on them and I would try to understand it and I would make them feel comfortable that it was okay to move. And I would do certain little movements and attribute it to something mechanical or whatnot. But the point was, is that these people that went under the million dollar workup got better with me literally within minutes before my eyes. And it's, and I can't say it was because of my mechanical genius. I don't think it was necessarily that, but I think I was making them feel less threatened and help them move better and and help them just not you know change the way they're they're living their lives and and empower them with things they could do whether it was you know correct or not so I think those moments where I felt like I helped someone get better without the injection and the people in my practice or in my fellowship were didn't really know what I was doing (laughs) and Yet sometimes I would see those patients and spend more time with them. And I wasn't, they didn't really get mad at me, at least not to my face that I saw half of the patients they saw in a day. And that was just me. I was the person that took more time. I was the one that tried to do things a little differently. I didn't have the same numbers as all of my colleagues. Um, And it's not that I was bad at my injections. I just didn't do as many. And, you know, you, you can get good at the injections with enough repetition and some dexterity, but Um, I think that was a big part of my realization that if I'm helping people get better, why do we need all these injections? And then the thing that really was the most powerful was when I tried to do a little bit of work outside of after my fellowship. And I kept confirming to myself, this is not, this is not good. Like you're not even trialing anything else. You're just automatically feeding pills to people and uh, I think it all happened then. I think it's really a combination of my own experience of helping myself and empowering myself and how I looked at dealing with it. And then also me helping people without, because we actually had a chiro, we actually had a physical therapist, a chiropractor that did osteopathic and physical therapy things in our clinic, which was unusual. And so it almost validated kind of what I was doing he was doing and he helped people too. So it just made me question that the injections, the medications were the end-all, be-all.
0: No, and and to realize that there's there's something more than mm-hmm. what we think, right. <laughs> not not any mystical woo-woo anything, but there's right. there's a being being validated, being understood, uh, and feeling comfortable and confident in both the person who's working with you and being able to feel safe in your bodies again is huge. You know, and, um, you know, it's funny. So you, you did it because of the manual aspect and you're saying, wait a second, I'm doing this and people don't do the injections. Well, I can tell stories about injecting, doing injections with, with, with steroid and local in, uh, in preserved free normal saline, which for if you have a clinical background, that doesn't, there's nothing that should take effect for a number of hours with that and having people literally jump off the table after the injection was done and saying that their pain was completely gone. And Was their pain completely gone? Yes, their pain wasn't completely gone. Did I put in something in there? Yes, I put something in there. Did it numb up anything? No, so how do, how does that kind of work? So it's interesting to see, to hear all that 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 question of why and and I wish we I wish as you know I wish there were more people that were asking those questions <laughs> to be honest, yeah. you know it's funny. I talked to you and and you asked those questions. we know other people who have asked started asking these questions. But nobody sort of challenges these assumptions when it comes to pain and like you were kind of leading on also in your introduction there this is not about opioids this the the pandemic that we're experiencing is that well, while the the opioids get all the press and is the hot political button and, 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 and there's so much there when we overshadow the discussion of pain with opioids and I think you were leading up to there, we, we start talking about why do we do so many injections that have such low clinical evidence to support them? Why do we have, or we do more back surgery than anywhere else in the world, two and a half times the next country? Uh, and how much money are we spending on these therapies? When, if we could kind of understand that relationship and, and understand how important it is to hear people's stories, and to help them again feel comfortable and confident again, what what could we I don't know what could we do to transform healthcare? So, wow, uh, you know, just listening to you is just makes me. There's so much that makes me think about it. Just uh, yeah. it's just kind of crazy, and it's just interesting to hear hear how how you've come because I mean, we've had lots of different conversations, but I've never actually got a chance to hear your background and story. So it was interesting to kind of hear where you're coming from with this.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I. I think, and this is kind of, it may seem a little bit off on a tangent, but I just think about the focus on on opioids and how we get so distracted from the real conversation or re- the real issues. And granted, we do know that a lot of this these overdose epidemics, there's a lot of illicit things going on too. But when you're talking about the population of people that are dealing with pain themselves and how we are barking up the wrong tree and and there's a sense that we're not compassionate because we don't let people have the opioids. You know, I, I do feel like, you know, there are people that have, the medical system has put this stuff out there and they are on them and they've been on it for years and we need to be compassionate to them and, and bridge them and build confidence and then work in that in a better direction away from them. But when you have people that have not been given opioids at all and they just enduring their pain for the first time. Now, knowing all of this, it, it makes no sense to me that we don't trial things with less risk. There is inherent risk with everything that we do to a patient. And there's so much more value to what patients can do for themselves that we can't even like describe to them. We do know that we can help them in certain ways, but there's still things we haven't even elucidated or described in great detail of the numerous, numerous benefits that can come from healthy approaches, which in essence is great wellness, but you need to guide people to help them understand that and what is most relevant for that individual, because it's so personalized. But then we talk about even, you know, injections and surgeries and, and all these things, and you hear patients, and this is where we have to change the, we have to shift the conversation amongst the public about what is it, To truly help people with pain and it's still opioids and still seems to be injections and surgeries and people go down this path thinking okay i need the best pain interventionalist i can get or i need to find the best surgeon to take care of my pain well i don't give a flying flip about anybody's surgical skill if you don't need surgery and i don't care about the skill of a a pain interventionalist if if you don't need that so the conversations are in the wrong place i think many times and and so we get very, um, we, it's, it's the most difficult challenge we face as people trying to change the conversation about pain, because it's been too attached to all of these things being done to a patient. And, and all we want is to empower people and help give a chance for all the things that take time, which are not as interventional, because most of the time these aren't life-threatening situations anyway. So um, it, it is very frustrating and emotional, I think, for a lot of us because we are compassionate. If you do care, and this wraps us back around to the same thing you were just saying, if you do care and you're asking why and you're reflecting on your practice and you take out any type of financial benefit to yourself, if you really care about a patient, then you are going to ask those questions because if they're not getting better, then you're 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 failing them in a way that now granted the patient has a responsibility but we are failing our patients if we do not give them the tools to help themselves because in between those appointments even if you think your great interventional thing is going to help them which at times it could in a very rare circumstance but if you don't give the context of all the things that they can do to help themselves to be that's negligent and, and to me that's cruel because you're not even giving them the tools they can use when they're not around you.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely, and, and that
1: seemed kind of harsh, but
0: <laughs> oh, I, I think you're nice. To be honest, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit more brutal, and <laughs> you were, you were way nicer than me, um because <laughs> I, I'd call it out a little bit more black and white than, than you did. I do think that you know, physicians struggle. Um, and I, I I think there's a system element to it as well. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, sure. when we're in fellowship, how much do we actually learn pain? Now we we may learn a little bit of the, the the cell types and physiology and say, maybe some of the neuroanatomy and things like that. But it was, we we rarely talked about pain and like, you're like, well, we need to start talking about treatment. And, and me, I go before that, I'm always, we need to focus on, do we actually know what we, we think we know about pain or do we actually understand what we're treating? And and the answer for me is no. Um, because there's so much new science out there that is just absolutely remarkable when you, and when you see it. And I, I, again, I don't know what happened in your fellowship. In my fellowship, we did not learn, we, you know, we did not learn up to date pain science. Um, and I would challenge that, that most Pain fellowships, particularly those that are still doing lots and lots of interventions, are not up to date on the pain science and part of that may be because the literature maybe comes from physical therapy or maybe it's coming from from phds and, and uh, so it's not being published by physicians per se. but when we we start looking at that data and appreciating it. That's where you know you see this discontinuity between what we do and what we say we're doing, and what actually helps people with pain. Because you you are you're right on. If we if we're gonna string people around and basically almost enslave them or entrap them to a therapy, have we served that patient? Have we actually helped them to get better? Well, man, I certainly wouldn't want that for my family. I wouldn't want it for myself. So why would I advocate that for anybody else in this world? It just it's just I don't know. It's very frustrating and. Uh, uh, and to see that, particularly when when I'm sure you probably had those those moments when people people get mad at you because maybe you're trying to explain or or teach or educate, and um, you know some people come in and they've been a lot of times taught that they're they just this quick fix that someone's going to magically come in and they're going to push the easy button and everything's going to go away. And can you do things like that? And do they kind of work sometimes? And usually not for the reasons that people are told. By the way. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not a place that you can grow from, and it's certainly not something that you can take home and apply when, when you know, after office hours, or, or when someone's on vacation or something like that.
1: Right. No, I I end up challenging people's beliefs a lot, and and my challenge is how to deliver that challenge in the at the right place, at the right time, <laughs> in the right way. Um, but I mean, even before, you know, I, I'm I'm in a situation where I I am faced with people believing that the surgery that I'm helping in a, with the anesthesia for is going to fix them and I have literally asked people you know what is it you're expecting from surgery like I <laughs> most people in anesthesia won't be doing this but when it comes to people going in for pain relief I want to make sure they've been fully informed and I will just ask them what is your expectation and when they say I won't have pain anymore I was like so 100% no pain, and like, well, maybe just 70%. You know, I I make them try to have some realistic expectations, even if I can't change their mind about what they're undergoing, whether it's needed or not. Which is uh, not a comfortable place for most people to put themselves in. Um, but I just I just feel so compelled. Like, it's as much as I I can't hold it back. I I'm in this so deep with trying to help people with pain that I it just I feel so badly for some of these people that they really believe that, you know, non-conservative stuff is the only thing that's going to fix them. And it's really, really heartbreaking.
0: No, and, and, and um, you're often in a difficult position. I haven't done anesthesia for a number of years now, but as an anesthesiologist, when you're in the operating room, uh, that is a very, um, it can be a very difficult relationship to have. Because, and again, with 100% honesty here, there are surgeries that are being done in the United States now that are not appropriate. And right. yet, now, what do you do? Because you have now seen this patient 10 minutes before a large operation. And, uh, you know, it was just pick on, uh, you know, a spine surgery where they're just using an image that may show some mild age related change, et cetera, that we know um, people who don't have back pain are associated with now coming in for a fusion or something like that. What is that like for you when you see that and and um you know to wrestle with that kind of that kind of dilemma, you know, because um, on one st- you know, I mean people say, well, you just do the right thing. Well, the right thing's really hard to do.
1: yeah, in
0: those moments of time, when um when there's a whole system around you, and then there is some there's some equivocalness on whether or not people are doing these procedures and operations like and for the for the audience in the background what i'm basically saying is there is a ton of surgery that, that are done quote unquote for pain that the evidence is slim to none and there are institutions that are doing these this is this again be, this is the pandemic beyond the opioids where, whether it's an injection or multi-level spine fusions or single level spine fusions so you know i know and i know <laughs> I can be honest here. Texas has some areas of, the, of their state that are known for over uh, doing mm-hmm. too much, and there's been write-ups on them for doing so. I mean, how how do you bridge that? What do you what do you do in those scenarios? Because again, I I know it's much more of a stronger. And if anybody out there just says, "Well, you just say you just don't do it," well, these are not like clear cut. Oh, this is a 15 year old kid that's coming in for you know a, a fusion from T1 to S1, and and it's, he's only had pain for a week. These are these are in that other realm where where, um, where it, it's just a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult conundrum to be in. So, so yeah. can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the hardest thing for me to see is multi-level fusions. And, and, and this is on multiple occasions. This isn't one example. I, there are dozens. Um, in my own personal experience just recently, that are multi-level fusions for the purpose of degenerative disc disease or which is doesn't have any good outcomes or any good evidence and um, with no functional deficits meaning you know no progressively worsening um, horrible you know problems with like bowel and bladder or you know there's no I mean, they're walking around and, in fact, many times have no pain just laying there. Um, and the worst combination of those is when, because I I ask basic questions, just kind of know where this patient is at functionally and whatnot, and um, they have never had any conservative management or treatment or um, guidance or education, and they get a direct referral from their primary care to a surgeon and voila here this person is for surgery they've been convinced that this is you know something that needs to be fixed and um, they signed up for it and it's a really um, almost unbearable thing for me it's really testing me um, in my practice and um, if I was to say and this is just one example, but in general, these multiple level fusions with no neurological deficits, poor education, no conservative treatment. Those are the worst things I see that really drive me nuts. Um, if I was to go to the surgeon and say, why are you doing the surgery? Um, that would go straight to my group. I probably would not have my job anymore. Um, and there's... The other alternative that still makes me feel complicit in this whole situation of the system, um, but I have to find a way to feel like I've at least informed the the patient of basic knowledge. Um, And that might be in a form of, so what's your understanding of why you're having this done? And of course, inevitably they'll say something like, I have degenerative disc disease or something. And I will just nonchalantly roll in additional information Saying, and I'm sure that the surgeon told you that many people your age that have degenerative disc disease, um, don't have pain as well. And the majority of them would have no pain for those that have MRIs and found the same finding at your age. And, and inevitably they say, no, <laughs> so I'm, I have to find a way to live with this because, and I don't want to say I know too much. But in the relative state of the nurses and physicians that are not in the world of pain or understanding it better from our basic knowledge that I do happen to know, uh, or at least I have a perspective that varies and I um, obviously am ethically at odds with this. Um, and I, I've batted my head against the wall on how you can change that. But when you have a system that drives money from from a hospital to the surgeons. So the surgeons bring the business to the hospital or outpatient surgery centers that have investors that are physicians, or you have medical device companies that, you know, and several people have seen me struggle. Um, I, I'm not always open and vocal about it, but people know who I am and what I'm probably about. And most people aren't going to say anything because their jobs hinge on this work too. And, um, This is where I think physicians that were, if they were to face the questions, really listen to the patient's story, understand they're not getting better, maybe understand that what they're doing is not helping them. If they really listen, then there's a real rude awakening that you have that there is a better way. There needs to be a better way of doing these things. But the problem on the flip side is that you realize, well, this is going to affect my livelihood. And I'm not able to provide for my family or how am I going to make money doing the right thing? And so I wish I had an answer. I know I've talked to people in other countries um, that say, you need to help us <laughs> by helping change the United States. Um, but I'm, I really have I have a hard struggle when you deal with either the, the financial pressure or the narcissism that can be blended into the situation of changing Surgical practices or interventional pain practices.
0: No, no, absolutely, and um, and that awareness, I think, sometimes is you know, it's 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 interesting because um, people will say, "Well, the, oh yeah, medicine." It, there's financial incentives in medicine, but it doesn't affect me. I'm <laughs> like, no, it affects everyone, mm-hmm. and the people who who don't believe they're biased are probably the ones that are the most biased about it, because it's it, it ignores human psychology. And if and and you have to be, I mean, it, it is just it's just fascinating to me how that can skew your perspective on whether or not you are going to get paid or reimbursed to do something it has such huge effects on your thinking pattern. Um it, it just blows and it just again it just blows my mind when you when you have people out there that'll say, Well, no, it doesn't affect mine because I know I know that there's bias and I'm not biased. It's like <laughs> You you need to be second guessing everything that you do if you're getting if you're getting a huge financial uh, incentive to do something because it is a slippery slope and just by the you know, again from the psychological data we know that has a significant impact on you. Um, anyway, I, it's just uh, that's a that's a I, I can't even imagine. Um, I guess the, the the lucky thing for me is I don't have to be in that environment anymore. Um, yeah. Because it is a, it is an absolute struggle. Another part that I've wrestled with, because I kind of think, well, what if I wasn't, what would I do? Like, would I, you know, there's a, you know, again, people like, well, you do the right thing. And I'm always about doing the right thing. But in those moments of time, the other part would be, well, you have a person who's now scheduled for a surgery, a pretty major surgery. If you say something, there's a good chance you will get removed from the operation. There's not a great chance that the operation is not going to proceed unless the patient completely backs out. Mm-hmm. And now you, and now if you had a really in-depth conversation, you've now put a bunch of fear and threat and mm-hmm. suspicion. Um, and again, when we know the data around pain and how those kind of interplay around, we, you know, it, the surgeries people can get better at surgery does not to be because of the surgery; it tends to be all those other effects in there. So now you're going to go in there, and even in this scenario, you're going to you, kind of blow out those. And just say you should never have the surgery done, you should never have the surgery done. Um, oh man, that's just a struggle.
1: That is such a struggle. Yeah, and the worst thing is that even if that person only saw the surgeon once, maybe they spent 30 minutes, they built more rapport and belief within that person than me. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing you talked about fear, if I the more you try to force it on them, the worse it is. I mean this kind of situation where you have to help them, see a different way that takes time and so i the only thing i came to within 15 minutes i had to like find my way to like be okay with helping them is that i i do care and i want them to be safe if they're going to go through this anyway regardless um and i wanted to make sure that you know in this in this particular case i just wanted to make sure that they were at least told. So if, if their big aha light went on, they had the choice to say no, or maybe I should reconsider or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the only way I could live with pursuing doing the anesthesia for this person. Um, and there's plenty of other examples and whatnot. And it's very interesting where people are um, in their readiness to hear these things. Um, it, it's, it's quite challenging to begin with, even if you're not in a surgical preoperative setting. But <laughs> Yeah, working against the godlike surgeon mentality, or at least the patient that perceives—not all patients see this way—but there are definitely a certain percentage that look up to the surgeon as the end-all, be-all, fix me, and I'm good, and can move on with my stressful life that I get no sleep and have no control over my other chronic conditions. Life, Um, you know, so (laughs) it is difficult.
0: It is, and and I, I I the I think the scary thing. And I don't want to scare people who are listening to this, but the it it makes sense to get the facts first yes and um anytime you're scheduled for anything it doesn't it doesn't matter it, we can it, we're, we're talking pain specifically here, but we can we i we could go through all sorts of different medical specialties and pick out very similar examples but unless the doctor is saying, we need to take you back to surgery right now or you're going to die, or you're going to lose a leg, or or something, and if you don't want the surgery right now, I want you to sign a medical release saying that you're refusing surgery. In all other situations, you've got time, mm-hmm. and if you have that time to, to do a little bit of research on, you know, what is the nature of the, and you're going to have to do some digging, too, because unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of this stuff, there's a whole lot of misinformation out there, uh, but get the full story. What are the risks? What's the benefits? And things like that, so and then you're not in a in a situation where poor dr Katie gets to see you in the pre-op area and in uh and has to undergo this uh, it, it, I just that's just awful it's a horrible ethical awful dilemma. yeah that's a horrible and there, there in in um and i'm not trying to i, don't, I hope i might make a lie of that it's just that that there's nothing worse there or I should say there's few things worse in the world than seeing things or doing things to somebody that you know shouldn't be done right that is that is like the the worst sort of feeling and I think that happens a lot in medicine and I think rather than come to to crossing that bridge of realization a lot of people then start doing um uh, what's they start uh, making excuses for it like you've probably heard this before. I, I, was, I was talking to somebody about, because um, in the military, obviously, we were, Paul paid the same, but I was talking to a, a friend of mine who was in the military, and he was, talking, he had, he was telling the story about a civilian surgeon friend of his, and the story was, you know, my friend told me, my friend speaking is his friend, he goes, "What if, if you saw this person with this thing and, and um, they could have an operation but you didn't think it was appropriate, what would you do? And so my friend answered, well, you don't do the surgery. And his friend, who was a civilian surgeon, said, no, that's the wrong answer. And my friend's like, what? And he goes, if you don't do the surgery, he's just going to go to the guy down the street. Mm-hmm. Now, the rationalization behind that is, well, in this, you see this all the time. Well, if he goes to the surgeon down the street, he doesn't have my training and is not nearly as good as me. Um, but, but realistically, if you weren't getting paid to do that surgery, you probably wouldn't.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you, you
0: would probably say the right thing and even say, well, if they choose to go to the guy down the street, then that's up to them. But... It's just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. This comes up over and over and over again in healthcare.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of rationalizations whenever you make money from something. So you would not want to take on the the risk or whatnot if you didn't make money on it. Um, It's just how much risk are they willing to take just to make the money off of it. Um, But, you know, this is the other thing too. You said make sure you get the information. People don't realize um you know it's just like the nervous system with pain your your body you know your subconscious picks up in a lot and it's extremely powerful and so when you come into a a surgical setting that's not familiar to you you don't work in the medical field even if you do there is an alert within you whether it's you're thinking about the iv this can have to be placed or you're just nervous about the surgery not sure about the outcomes not sure about the pain afterwards there is all of this. It is so hard for someone like me to try to, you know, be a voice of reason for you because it's kind of at that point you've already bought in and you are now on have anxiety that your nervous system is trying to protect you from this very foreign environment that you're not looking forward to the things that they're going to do to you. So it's in some way kind of an internal um, mind pain that if you're not feeling pain at that moment there is a certain pain and anxiety that you get just from being in that environment so that's why part of getting fully informed you know you want to do that before you're in a situation where you're you're just your body is on on intense protection mode and uh, you can't really hear things right
0: no absolutely The, the best time to make a critical decision is before it's a critical decision hmm So, you know, it's in um the worst time for real really education is in an acute scenario. <laughs> like Yeah. You know, uh it, it's funny when it comes to pain, is like understanding pain in 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 pain science is like, well, if people are like, well, you don't do it when someone if someone's broken their leg right in front of you, you're not gonna start talking about pain science with them. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. It it doesn't. What you're going to do is you're going to reassure them. You're going to help them feel safe. You're going to, you know, there's other techniques that you can do. You may guide them around um, understanding some physiologic principles that will help them, but you don't, that's not the time and place of education. And when we all know this, right? It's like anytime you're under huge amounts of stress, it doesn't help for someone to say, well, now I'm going to teach you, you know, if my, if the power goes out in my house and all the lights are off and my refrigerator is, is all the food and is melting, I don't want an electrician to come in and start telling me teaching me why electricity flows down a wire or or right. whatever. I don't, you know, right. until I don't know electricity, it doesn't make sense. I need the problem or at least need an answer in that moment in time. And so, yeah, yeah it's like labor, like you know? labor. Yeah.
1: You're not going to tell them how the whole nervous system works. You tell them to take some deep breaths and slow it down. Well, you
0: know, but you know, it's amazing. Um, we actually had in, in the Navy, we had a, uh, one of our attendings and, uh, she was really good at making people f- feel comfortable. In fact, you know, when you, when you have labor epidural, there's a point where you don't really want to put it in because the risks outweigh the benefits because the baby's going to be close or or, or or too soon, and you know, then you have the risk of epidural without any benefit from it. But uh, I'll never forget she had she had gotten called to OB. Someone was in active labor, and she was gone, and then she trotted back like I don't know, 30, 40 minutes later, or whatever. <laughs> like, oh, did you put the epidural? And she's like, No, I just t- I just taught her lemmas. But when you're saying she wasn't teaching her Lamaze, she basically took her through Lamaze. And lo and behold, this lady did great, you know, and it's just being able to have that comfort and confidence and be able to demonstrate and take people through that process. You're not teaching that process. You're taking them through that process. So Mm -hmm. powerful stuff, man. It's uh, I don't know. Just we we neglect it. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, we well, tangibles, tangibles. We went way <laughs> off topic here, by the way. I wasn't planning on, on going in this route <laughs> That's uh, okay. and I'm not going to take up too much of your more time here. But is there what for you? And I think we've touched on a number of different issues, but what would you if, the, if there's an audience member out there, what's the one takeaway that w- you would like them to get out of this particular discussion? And I can do two. Uh, there's going to be two different audiences. One's the healthcare provider that's been out there struggling with pain, has been unsure, maybe is a little frustrated, maybe is getting frustrated with their patients because things don't seem to work the way that they they thought they were going to work, and maybe they're feeling, you know, just kind of overwhelmed. That's one audience, the healthcare provider. And then the second one is the person who's really struggling, who's maybe taking that step and saying, you know what, something isn't quite right when it comes to this whole uh, world of pain out there. Uh, what would you say to them? Like the, the one, the one thing that you want them to take away from this.
1: So basically, you you want just like a physician providers or just any kind of yeah, clinician. You, you know,
0: pick the physician provider because we, we I know they're okay. out there.
1: Yeah, um, I think that if if a physician provider is struggling, um, I think we all have to be honest with ourselves and. Um, the discomfort, just like pain, you're gonna to have to embrace it in some way or another, or we're just gonna be lying to ourselves. And um, I think the silver lining is, despite that discomfort, if you start surrounding yourself by others that are, are you know, whether it's through some of the, I know you're gonna be involved with some conferences. I find that the most depressing conferences are actually the traditional physician <laughs> conferences, and if you can go to something like. That is incorporating all disciplines and really trying to educate about pain, whether it's through what you're doing, Kevin, or some other good groups that are out there and surround yourself by people that are invigorated by the things that are tools that aren't necessarily what physicians are taught, but you can still glean a lot of good information and uh, at least develop an appreciation for the other things that you can do to help people. And to really value yourself in the sense that the time you give people to listen to their story, um, to validate them, and to never give them uh, a limitation and a hopelessness. I think that if you can just open your mind to other ways and surround yourself by supportive people doing good things to help people learn from them. And in essence, I think it allows you to help patients in a more productive way, at least to give them some hope, um, because if you don't have hope, it's hard to pass that on to a patient, and that's the worst thing you can do, I feel, is to limit your patient's possibilities um, or put them through a lot of risk that's unnecessary. So I hope that's a good enough uh, <laughs> suggestion for providers or physicians. I, I, I
0: think that's great. I, I, I can tell you now I, that would be a message I would I, I definitely needed. Uh, yeah. when I was going through the struggles on, on, cause we've, we've all done it and it was horrible and unpleasant and difficult and you think you're going crazy and you think you're alone in the world and you're, and you're like you're trying to do the right thing, but it doesn't seem like the world wants you to do the right thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah. Thank you so much that, that, uh, selfishly. I wish I had heard that when, 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 <laughs> you know, years ago when I, when I, yeah. it would have really, really helped me. So what about, the, yeah. what about the, the public member or the person who's got a, it's either them with persistent pain, they're, they're struggling, or they have a family member that's struggling with persistent pain?
1: Well, I say this from personal experience too. Um, well, I'll say one thing when it comes to your clinicians. Um, try to understand the story we're telling you about the pain that it is for clinicians and physicians that are really struggling to find ways to help you as a patient um, because it is a painful process for them because it's um, there's a lot going on in the mind of of a clinician if they're not experienced and have a good understanding of the most up-to-date pain science Um, and then I would say for your own personal approach is that I always try to remind myself that my pain does not define me my pain is trying to protect me, but sometimes um, it's more about me trying to understand what that pain means or, or what it's trying to tell me. It's not always simple as touching a hot stove and pull your finger away. Um, your pain is, is really there to be your guide and to help you understand. And it's not always an easy process to, to admit or recognize the things that are causing your pain or contributing to it. And I think you have to have a certain level of not um, stubborn persistence, but a little bit of persistence in the sense of walking with your pain to understand it and realize that when you try something or you're trying to discover and explore the pain, I always believe in exploring your pain to try to understand it, that you might find that something doesn't work. But when, to me, some people see that as a failure or a sense of loss of hope. That's actually just more information that that's not what it is for you that's going to help. And you have to keep discovering it. And sometimes the things that help you take time, it's like, you know, if someone gains 100 pounds, you know, if you don't lose that 100 pounds right away, you, you still have to celebrate the little victories. And those are just as important, too. But sometimes it takes time to figure out what it is in your life that's going to help your pain. And you just need to find people that will be supportive of that and will listen to you and acknowledge your pain and never accept anybody telling you that it will never change or that there's nothing that can be done. Um, to me, that that is one of the worst things that can be done to an individual. And I don't care what part, time of life it is, whether it's a physical pain, emotional pain, sometimes it's all about just being there with them and knowing that people are trying to help them in that journey.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And, and that returns to the point where uh, early on you said we underappreciate the resiliency of the human body. I would say that we underappreciate the resilience of the human being. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's nothing more arrogant than telling people that they're, that these bodies that we have that are just the, uh, unbelievably amazing things um, don't have the capacity to heal because they do.
1: Yeah, I see it every day. I mean, people are people. The mind is so incredibly powerful. You can see it in athletes. I mean, there is there is no end to it. And like you said, if a physician or a clinician puts that kind of limitation on you, then they don't understand the human body in its full capacity.
0: No. And and unfortunately, then there's two reactions. Then the person's going to believe you, which mm-hmm. is horrendous and awful. And that person has now been trapped been told be these limiting beliefs that have a Im- huge impact on behavior and really the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're gonna, you know, there are those episodes when they will not believe you. And they will, in fact, they get mad instead. And, uh, we've seen those were kind of the rare occasion and they go off and do it because of it, despite what you said. And, um, you know, there's been some interesting stories there too. So
1: yeah.
0: anyway, well, where, where can people find you, Dr. Katie?
1: Well, I, the easiest way to find me is my, my main page, challengedoctor.com, and uh, there's a lot of reasons I use Challenge Doctor, but you can learn a little bit about that at the page. But it has everything that I'm involved in, from anesthesia to pain to random live you know, chats on Facebook and whatnot.
0: Great, great. All right, guys. Well, um, you know, thank you, Dr. Katie, for coming on today. It was a pleasure to to talk with you. And like many of my interviews, we went all over the place, not necessarily where (laughs) I thought we were going to go. We went into some in depth stuff. Um, but again, thank you so much for for coming on the show, sharing your experiences. Certainly, it's good to talk to you as a, as a fellow anesthesia interventional pain trained person. Um, like you said, it's nice to have to know you're not alone in this world. So, thank you for coming on. Thank you for all the good work that you are doing, um, that you will continue to do for your patients. And for everybody else out there, stay well.